This is an ultimate global podcast. Hello, and welcome to our special weekly podcast on trending international and social affairs. You're listening to Saurabh Kora and George Mavros from Sydney. So welcome to another exciting episode of Ultimate Global Podcast, a podcast on global affairs and people's stories. Um, and this is a very special month for this podcast because uh, we are going to complete one year uh, and we are celebrating that on the 30th of August from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Sydney time. I've already sent an invite to a lot of my friends here in Sydney and also the speakers who have joined us from different parts of the world, including the US, Europe, South Asia, Australia. It will be great to have all those people on that Zoom meeting and uh, network with each other because one of the main uh, objectives of starting this podcast was to enhance networking uh, with different people and also share conversations about you as a person. And that's why it's called a podcast on the people's stories. One of the trending global affairs in this year has been the Russia-Ukraine war. And because of that war, it has had an indirect and direct impact on different countries. Uh, those impacts have affected Australia, have affected um, other countries in South Asia, Southeast Asia, Middle East, European countries, Nordic countries, the United States, and of course, uh, the other North American countries as well. So. We wanted to bring in the expertise on that for this particular podcast episode. And so we have decided to bring in Misha Zelinsky, and he's a national security expert who is currently reporting on Russia's invasion from Ukraine for the Australian Financial Review. So I would love to know from you, Misha, um, as to what are your general comments on the current situation, which is uh, trending related to the Russia-Ukraine war? Uh, look, firstly, thank you for having me. And also, can I just say a big congratulations. As a fellow podcaster, uh, coming up to a one-year anniversary, it's a big thing to do. Most people start podcasts, realise how difficult they are, and stop. Uh, so that you've persevered to the one-year mark is a huge, a huge tribute to you and everyone who produces the show. So big congratulations. And uh, I think that's very exciting. So... Now, look, thank you for having me. And clearly, uh, we're talking about Ukraine and its impact uh, on the world, uh, the invasion in Ukraine. I think the most important thing to remember as we discuss this is that it's still happening. Uh, in February, uh, when the invasion started, when Putin first sent his armies in and started bombarding Ukrainian cities, I think the world was aghast. And there was a huge amount of interest and a flurry of activity and people wanting to help. And that lasted several months. And uh, it was very important. Uh, clearly, what was happening there was horrific. But what's happening today is equally horrific. Now, it might be true that uh, Putin failed in being able to capture Kiev and capture the entire Ukraine, but he is still occupying roughly 20% of Ukraine's landmass. He's still bombarding cities as we speak. Uh, Ukrainians are dying in cities in the east, uh, protecting themselves and trying to stop the Russian advances and also looking to take parts of the South. So I think that's the most important thing is whilst they're talking about a grinding phase of the war, so to speak, and that the war is now more localised in the eastern part of Ukraine, the Donbass, so to speak, which is where uh, a lot of the pre-invasion activity had occurred, where the separatist wars that Putin had been um, essentially resourcing since 2014 when he annexed Crimea and started those wars in the east in Donbass. Uh, 
that that's where it is now and in big parts of the south uh, but nevertheless it's still happening you know in a really severe and important way and what you're seeing is perhaps more localized fighting but extremely brutal fighting uh hundreds of people dying every day in in hand-to-hand -hand combat in bombardments and that is a level of you know what you say attrition but that's people dying soldiers dying that's a level we really haven't seen since world war ii and so this is a really intense war that's still underway and people can't sort of think well maybe it's nearly over it's not regrettably and uh, we need to do everything possible to try to make sure that ukrainians have what they need to defend themselves and defend their country defend their democracy and you know some of the things underway right now you're already talking about 13 million people out of a population of somewhere around 41 42 maybe 43 million people numbers very little but in the 40s so you're talking about a quarter to a third of the country has been displaced they're refugees 140,000 dwellings or civilian buildings have been destroyed so not just 140,000 houses but including apartment buildings etc so that is just an extraordinary number of people that have been displaced from their homes millions of people no longer have a home to go to and they've been scattered around europe uh largely or scattered around the world also and so that refugee crisis is the biggest we've seen since World War II as well, because this is the biggest land invasion we've seen since World War II. And that's just some of the things that are happening right now. And the horrific displacement, the horrific destruction is ongoing. And we need to make sure we continue to pay attention to what's happening there, because it's absolutely critical that the world doesn't look away, doesn't get fatigued, because that's what Putin's counting on. Yep. I think one of the questions, Misha, can be that, what was the main objective of starting this war? And... Do you really think that objective has been met from the Russian point of view? And what else can they be trying to achieve uh, from spoiling the things further down in Ukraine, considering the fact that more and more countries now in their neighborhood have decided to join NATO? Right. Well, you sort of hit the nail on the head there. If you were going to give the most generous uh, interpretation of what Putin's objectives are, that he wanted to stop a... Uh, democratic western leading ukraine on his doorstep he wanted to stop so-called uh, nato encroachment on his doorstep in his uh, sphere of influence as putin likes to describe it he didn't want to have nato on his doorstep were his essential words and well now he's got it and so if the objective was to stop uh, so-called encroachment well uh, in ukraine right now Good luck finding anyone that has a positive view of the Russian Federation, a positive view of Putin. So he's created the thing that he hates, which is Ukrainian nationalism, so to speak, Ukrainian democracy and Ukraine's urge and will to join uh, Europe. And so they're now a candidate nation for European Union status. And in terms of NATO itself, well, Sweden and Finland, which are on the border really of Russia, have joined NATO. So NATO has gotten bigger in the time since the war started only a couple of months ago. So look, Putin's objectives, we don't really know because the guy's insane, right? And so to sort of uh, apply logic to his motives, I think it's a little, uh, you know, probably not for us to do because we can't put ourselves in his mindset. But what's also clear is that if any of his objectives on a sort of macro basis, he's failed. He hasn't captured Ukraine. He said he'd do it in three days. He's expanded NATO. He said he wanted it to shrink and disappear. He's wanted, uh, you know, he's been trying to destabilise Europe and the West for a generation. And all that instability is now, you never see more unity amongst the old uh, Western allies, if you want to call it that. His economy is absolutely cratered. Uh, his supply chains are destroyed. And the prestige of Russia, if you want to measure that, is absolutely, you know, frankly, zero uh, for a country that 
it has a lot going for it if it wasn't ruled by a dictator. Um, and so what you've seen there is complete utter destruction of Russia in every single measure. But Putin's objectives have shifted throughout the war. Now it was always, well, we only ever really needed to control this bit of the east, bit of the south. So really he has shifted his objectives to suit the scenarios on the ground. And I think he's been a little bit shocked about how fiercely the Ukrainians have resisted and fought hard. I think he's been shocked at the strength and severity of sanctions and the ability and resolute uh, nature of the West to continue to fund and provide Ukrainian weaponry. And also I think he's been shocked at how badly his army has fought. I mean, that's one of the big takeaways here that we didn't know going into this whether or not a middle power economy, which is what Russia is, a middle power, its economy is about the size of Australia's, uh, and a very unsophisticated economy, mind you. It's not as sophisticated as Australia's economy. So it's an oil and gas economy uh, with a bunch of crooks sitting on top of it. And so uh, could that economy with that level of sophistication maintain and operate a large military superpower? Well, the answer is no. Uh, Russia's fighting capability has been terrible. Uh, its lack of integration of its air, sea, and naval powers have been terrible. They lost their flagship vessel. Hasn't happened since the Falklands War. Uh, and so they lost it to a you know military minnow in the Ukrainians, so and, and to a Ukrainian-built missile. And so the shock and, and the sheer number of casualties and injuries, his army is extraordinarily depleted. So I think overall. We don't know what his objectives were, but if he was looking for, it's hard to point to any successes. Um, and I think that's the important thing here, which is why uh, the West should continue to be confident. The world should be t continue to be confident to uh, uh, continue to help Ukraine in its struggle. Absolutely. And just moving away from the Russia's perspective and the objectives of Vladimir Putin, I would also like to ask you about the challenges that the world faces at large. At this point of time, both from the geopolitical point of view and financial point of view, because there have been concerns that a lot of countries may end up going into recession due to rising prices, rising inflation. And a part of it is um, being questioned and being deliberately pointed out that because of that war, it has affected uh, the inflation part in different countries because it has a direct impact on the fuel prices and the food prices um, and different kind of other prices as well. And also from a geopolitical perspective, because some of the countries have clearly taken sides um, either, either towards Russia, mostly towards Ukraine, and some of the countries haven't clearly taken sides uh, on paper, talking about countries like India. Uh, they haven't clearly said that uh, which side they're supporting. Um, and most of the European countries and other countries have kind of clearly stated which side they're supporting. Um, so how do you think this geopolitics um, and financial impact in the coming times for these countries? Right. Well, there's sort of two parts to your question. So let's deal with the economics first. I mean, clearly uh, the big story outside of the Ukraine invasion uh, by Putin is this uh, inflationary effect we're seeing around the world and the rising interest rates we're now seeing around the world after basically a generation of extraordinarily cheap and low money uh, uh, interest rates so you know the thing about inflation is it's very painful economically and it's also very painful politically and so ukraine and russia are two of the world's biggest exporters of food two of the world's biggest exporters of energy and two of the world's biggest exporters are the things that go into the production of food you know potassium fertilizers etc and so uh a lot of your audience may not know this but when the arab spring happened in 2010 11 
the year before that, uh, essentially there was a very bad crop in Ukraine and Russia, and there was a very big drop in the amount of food being exported and a huge spike in food prices. Now, uh, people get very cranky when food's expensive or in shortage, unsurprisingly, and in uh, more unstable societies, that can often lead to political instability. And so we saw that. Um, now, this wasn't the only reason why there was these uprisings in uh, the Middle East, but nevertheless, it was the catalyst uh, for, for those things. And so Putin, if you were to look at it cynically, and whilst they're letting shipments of food now happening, he was very happy to see this pressure building around the world in societies that are unstable, uh, because obviously when we had uh, when we had the Arab Spring, that led to a huge refugee crisis, civil war in Syria, and a big refugee inflow into Europe, which causes all kind of political chaos, which he's happy to see. And so a lot of uh, people cynically viewed that that's what Putin was trying to do with the blockading of food exports quite horribly out of Ukraine and stopping Ukraine being able to feed the world with its food production. So there's sort of the, the one element to it. But the other thing too is he wants to break uh, the sanctions on his economy and the way to do that is to put political pressure on political leaders. He understands democracies, uh, unlike his own country where he can do whatever he wants. Politicians in uh, you know liberal democracies have got to answer to the people. And, and when food prices are going up by high single digits, when petrol prices are record, levels, when energy prices at record levels, when people are looking at their power bill going, oh my God, political pressure builds and elections, you know, there's an election coming up right now in the United States in a few months time. So that level of political pressure is what Putin's trying to build. And he's looking to sort of break the headlock um, that the West has on him in sanctions and trying to put some pressure back on them. And so that's the sort of the, the, the struggle we're in right now. And, and who blinks first is a big question because I sort of started off talking about all the pressures on the Russian economy, the inability to source uh, the inputs he needs for his economy, his uh, you know, inability now essentially to build cars, to source uh, inputs uh, for weaponry, etc. the inability to replenish tanks. Those are big problems for Putin. And, and also the, you know, the general fleeing from the country of, uh, of uh, you know, Western companies has made life a lot worse for Russians, ordinary Russians that aren't in the ruling class. And so uh, he's he's got those pressures, but he wants to inflict pressures um, on the West and see who blinks first. And so it's really important that we maintain that sense of righteous indignation that we felt in February. Uh, we need to maintain that right throughout this invasion. Now, secondly, to the geopolitics of it, uh, and obviously they're linked to economics, but you're right to point out a lot of people said, oh, well, the world is supporting Ukraine. Well, that's not quite true. The old Western alliance, if you want to call it that, uh, NATO alliance, uh, you know, the old powers um, you know, that were aligned to the United States during the Cold War, including Australia, you can add Japan to that, uh, they are now uh, very much united against Ukraine and then, uh, sorry, against Russia in support of Ukraine. Then, of course, you have uh, you know, the old group of uh, autocratic cronies. You've got this uh, forever partnership, this no limits partnership between Xi Jinping the Chinese Communist Party and Putin's Russia. And that's a big, big thing that happened right before the invasion, actually, at, at the Beijing Winter Olympics. And a, and a profoundly important thing that I think we look back in history is a big turning point. But And you're seeing North Korea and, and the other sort of uh, group of thugs all backing one another. And then, as you point out, there's a sort of group sitting it out. you got India. That's a big one, obviously. Main, they had a neutrality during the Cold War, where they uh, sort of try to stay out of it. But you've got Africa, you've got other parts of Southeast Asia, Asian, Asian nations, Pacific, the same, look, leave us out of this, right? And so 
it's really important then in this struggle, if we actually believe that democracies are the best way for people to govern their own society, to self-govern, for people to be free and make their own decisions, we need to make the case. So we need to make the case that on a moral basis. So I think that you've got this economic crisis, but there's also a crisis of morality here to say we need to make, you know, we don't want to see a world where autocrats can just decide they're going to wipe out their neighbours because they don't like the decisions, the sovereign decisions that those governments are making, those people's are ma- people are making, because if we allow that to happen there, then it can happen anywhere. And an obvious example is Taiwan and uh, the self-governing democratic island there, uh, which resists uh, occupation by the Chinese Communist Party. And the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping have made it clear that it belongs to mainland China. And that's one flashpoint, but there are many others around the world. And if you're emboldened dictators, and frankly, I think we've been emboldening Putin for 20 years, but certainly largely and particularly over the last 10 years, and bad behaviour uh, when you turn a blind eye, unfortunately, doesn't make that bad behaviour go away. It begets more bad behaviour. And so those are the stakes. And we need to make the case, the royal we, people in free democracies to say this is the best way. We're going to live our values. We're going to defend our values. And we need to demonstrate that we're doing it abroad, but also at home. And I think that's one of the big challenges for democracies. And so, uh, you know, that, that's a challenge for all of us. We've got to get it right because the stakes are very high. Yep. And I think uh, one of the critical areas that you've already touched is the Taiwan. I wanted to also talk about the Nordics because a lot has been happening in those three countries of Denmark, Sweden, and Finland, when people were estimating that they might get scared or they might not join the NATO alliance uh, because there was some sort of confusion till few months back before they ultimately decided that they will be submitting their application for, for the NATO. Um, how, how do you see now things happening in, in that area? Because Nordics is generally considered to be the countries which are the happiest countries uh, the countries where people, you know, are, I don't think they want any kind of wars or they have witnessed any kind of wars in years and years because they have kind of maintained that uh, neutral position and they have never joined NATO um, because they have also maintained some sort of relationship with Russia. But now taking the side of NATO, how do you think it impacts uh, the Eastern Europe, in especially countries like Finland and Sweden? Well, I think the interesting thing about... Uh... You know, the European attitude to these things is that the smaller nations tend to be and the closer they are to the, uh, you know, the Ukrainian front lines, if you want to call it that, the closer they are to Russia and Putin's armies, the braver these people tend to be. So when you look at countries like you know, Sweden, Finland, you know, for 70 years they avoided joining NATO. They didn't want to be involved in these conflicts. And now when you've got a out-of-control dictator invading countries that will, What's the rational thing to do when you're a small country who's unable to defend itself one-to-one? You look for friends, right? It's like the principles of unionism. I'm a unionist. And you say, okay, we have strength in numbers. On our own, the strong person can pick us off. But together, we've got strength. And so the rational thing to do is say, okay, well, he's invaded one neighbouring country. Why would he stop there? Why why would he stop at uh, just Ukraine? He might say, well, now Finland and Finland and Sweden, you're talking about joining NATO. I'm going to come in there. And so whilst uh, yeah, it's a highly rational thing to do, and I think it's incredible that through it took Putin to make, make the case to Swedish and Finnish, Finnish people that they got to join NATO. Uh, NATO couldn't make the case, and they couldn't say, hey, you guys should join NATO. 
it took Russia's invasion for that to happen. And so that's kind of backfired on Putin, as I said before. But I think, you know, if you also take the example, I know we're talking about Nordic countries, which are obviously extraordinary societies and ones that, you know, when I talk about democracies being great models to the world, if you're going to hold up any sort of model, um, you probably hold up the Scandinavian countries and say, this is how societies should organise themselves, where you have great public services, great social equality, great, uh, uh, you know, intergenerational equality and very harmonious societies and great places to live bit cold uh but uh overall you know brilliant places and and, and that's you know the power of choice and the power of being able to self-govern and so that's you know when you and then you can contrast with some democracies that are more dysfunctional like the united states or the united kingdom at the moment but ultimately that dysfunction can play itself through and we can work it out amongst ourselves to work out where we want to go as a people but I think also when you're looking at examples of bravery and the attitudes, look at Lithuania. You know, they've stood up to, in the last year, not just Russia, they've been blockading Russian uh, exports and, and doing all sorts of things to earn the ire of Putin. But they also have been standing up for Taiwan and they've been standing up uh, to the Chinese Communist Party, despite Chinese Communist Party essentially saying, we're going to block every bit of your exports. And why are they doing that? Because they understand that if the world, starts to pull apart and if we say might is right and the big dog gets to decide then Lith lithuania is stuffed and so is so is sweden so is norway so is you know denmark so is australia right and so we need to have a sense of unity common purpose and the ability to say we're going to defend one another and that and that's why what's happening in ukraine matters everywhere this is not some distant eastern european war and i've said why it matters to the Lithuanians and why it matters to the uh, the Nordics and the Scandinavians, but it matters to all of us who are who believe in free and democratic, you know, societies and free and democratic ways of life. Because you know, if we allow democracies just to be gobbled up, then there's no stopping. You don't stop at one, right? You don't just take a bite. You want the rest, and, and those are the stakes. And that's why, you know, what happens in Ukraine matters everywhere. Our fates really are intertwined, and. Uh, that's why I've been so passionate in sort of promoting the stories of Ukrainian bravery because they are fighting for all of us. And going back to Europe, I think, unfortunately, the further you seem to get away from that front line is where you start to see more question marks raised about, well, should we continue with this? How much should we fight? Uh, you know, what, what, when does this end? And, you know, maybe our power prices are too high. We need, we got to, you know, well, how do we deal with this gas crisis? And ironically, the further you get away, when you look at France and Germany and their relative economic heft and military heft, they're the two nations that are most capable of really standing up to the Russians. And so um, there's this sort of odd, you know, inversion where the biggest are the meekest and the smallest are the most brave. But I think it makes sense when you actually unpack it and say, if you're small, you need everyone together. And I think that's why. Um, when I speak to my Lithuanian friends in particular, they say we need everyone together because we're next. Absolutely. Um, I also want to know from you about, since you have been covering this war since the beginning of uh, when it started back in February, um, one of the main public figures uh, who has been praised for his leadership, for the way he has led his country from the front is the Ukrainian president itself. Um, so you would love to know from you, since you have covered that war very closely, 
how do you see the leadership skills that has that have been displayed by the ukrainian president he has been praised by different prime ministers different leaders around the world what's your take on that well it's extraordinary firstly isn't it right so who could have named the ukrainian president before february 21 very few people here i could have because uh we've got a very similar last name but uh beyond that i think he was not particularly well famous now he's you know just as uh well known as say joe biden or uh xi jinping or you know or uh, boris johnson and so uh his ability to raise the status and profile not of himself but of his country has been extraordinary i think his his background as an entertainer has been discussed a lot and i think that has been his ability to use modern information and communication mediums and he has led that assault you know with with daily videos uh, in his sort of iconic uh you know green t-shirt now and uh but he's led that effort not just with himself but there's been an explosion of content out of Ukraine ordinary Ukrainians either in Ukraine or Ukraine or around the world magnifying the messages of what the Russians are doing and how the world can help and those things have really they the Ukrainians led by Zelensky have really sort of beautifully leveraged the modern media infrastructure and the modern media relationship between traditional media social media and the ability to amplify messages and that's really contrasted ironically against uh the sort of top down method of the russians which is very much putin speaks and has to sort of go out through the traditional channels and i think the messiness and relentlessness of the ukrainian messaging strategy has really overwhelmed the putin machine and ironically up until now people have said well the russians are the masters of misinformation and sort of been overwhelmed here by firstly the truth of their own brutality but secondly the brilliant strategy and tactics of zelensky and the ukrainians but i think also um there's an element here that you can't quite price and that's bravery and so if you go right back to the beginning of the war and i was in kiev when this was happening a lot of people assumed that kiev would fall in 24 hours certainly at least 72 hours and that was putin's strategy to capture zelensky get him in chains marching down the street trying for treason who knows what and replacing the puppet regime be invited in have his tanks sitting there and dare the west to come get him that was the strategy obviously failed and zelensky when he was speaking to other world leaders on the eve of the invasion as the tanks were rolling in was saying to everyone this might be the last time you see me alive he knew that he knew the stakes for himself and yet despite that people were saying president zelensky you should leave you should go you should go uh to have set up a government in exile in Lviv or other parts of the world it maybe the way Charles de Gaulle did in World War 2 but he said you know I don't need ammunition I need a ride I said I don't need a ride I need ammunition you know I'm staying and you can't quite how do you price that right so the fighting in those early days when the world was watching and to see what happened and frankly not doing enough but it was those early days of brave fighting where the Ukrainians turned this around themselves and as they fought more vigorously and effectively the world started saying geez these guys are hanging on uh they they won a few key battles here the you know, russians have not captured kiev the government has not fallen and so weapons started to flow belatedly and the west got more and more confident to do more sanctions etc and a lot of that i think came down to zelensky saying i'm staying here in the capital if you're a soldier or a citizen saying well that president's staying we're going to fight for the capital we're going to keep it and Yeah you know, if you contrast it with World War 2 and a lot of people make these contrasts and parallels with Zelensky saying he's like Churchill well let's imagine if Churchill left London and went to New York and said oh we'll fight them on the beaches but I'll be here 
um, you know, it, 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 the psychology of these things is important. I think that bravery, knowing that there's a good chance he could be killed or captured and staying anyway, I think history will mark that down as an incredibly important turning point in the war and generally in the struggle against autocrats. And just lastly, I mean, I went to Zelensky's hometown. I wrote a long profile piece on his city called Krivirig, which is just above Crimea. A lot of people don't know this. They think, oh, Zelensky, he was a university graduate, an entertainer. Uh, then he's playing the role of president. He played the role of a president in a show called Servant of the People, sort of a art becoming a reality. But he's actually from a city called Krivirig, which is a steel town, a manufacturing town, a real hard ex-Soviet town. And Reminded me a lot of every other steel town I've visited around the world where it's very manufacturing driven. Remind me a lot of Wollongong, my own hometown, manufacturing, blue collar, tough people, no nonsense people. And it was uh, known for its uh, heavy gang violence, known for, uh, unfortunately, you know, very tough life there where there was high levels of uh, fatalities relating to cancer clusters, um, high unemployment, the typical story of Rust Belt type cities in decline. And that's where he comes from. And that toughness, that sort of never say die attitude and that kind of earthy working class, no nonsense ability to cut through the bullshit, frankly, and know what's important, know what's not. I was so warned by the people of Kriviri and they were so proud of their president. And it showed me that this is not just an entertainer playing a role. This is a tough man from a tough town and uh, ready for tough times. And, and that was my big takeaway, mate. Yep. Um, before we end this uh, podcast today, Misha, I want to ask one last question, which is, of course, the topic of this podcast. So to sum up on whatever we have discussed in the last 20-25 minutes, what do you feel can be some of the ways in which uh, the countries, not only Russia and Ukraine, but other countries can overcome the challenges which are arising from the Russia-Ukraine war? Um, on the basis of our discussion, what do you think we can sum up on that? Well, I think the, the economic issues will sort themselves out. Supply chains issues will be managed. And I think um, you know, economics is important because that's what drives people's lives. But I think the moral questions are, w- are what's going to matter here. And what I mean by that is to say, what are the, what's the sort of world that we want to live in? For, for a long time now, really since the Cold War, we've sort of looked the other way on bad behavior and hoped that over time, autocrats would go away, that uh, perhaps they'd be replaced internally. Well, as they've gr- you know, grown stronger at home, uh, we've sort of continued to indulge them. And now finally, and almost inevitably, you're seeing them lash out around the world. Uh, you're seeing Putin invading Ukraine, but you're also seeing increasing threats from Xi Jinping's Chinese Communist Party related to Taiwan, but also building bases now uh, on Australia's coast, uh, in the Solomon Islands, in other parts of the world, seeking to you know, basically make the world safe for autocrats and safe for totalitarianism. And so the question for us in this struggle is, can democracy still deliver at home and abroad? Because geopolitics is a result-driven business. You know, we didn't win the Cold War because people read Marx or they read Jefferson and they said, you know what, I think Jefferson or Jonathan Locke, they've got the better argument. No, because we won the Cold War because West Berlin was a better place to live than East Berlin, which was a shitty place to live. And humanity voted with its feet. And, you know, JFK said, we don't have to build a wall to keep our people in. And so ultimately still people want to be free, but we need to prove that uh, economic advancement and individual and, uh, you know, societal liberty are not severable, that they are linked. Because the CCP is now saying, well, look, you can be rich. Don't worry about all the 
don't worry about all this freedom nonsense. These things are separate. And look at the West. It can't sort itself out. And that's the big challenge for us now. When Bill Clinton was president, he said, you know, liberal democracies are going to take over the world and it's going to be inevitable. The march will not be stopped. 20 years later, Joe Biden, uh, who's a senator at the time, he's saying when he comes in as president, the challenge now is to prove to the world that democracies can still deliver at home. And we can't sell them abroad if they don't deliver at home. So we've got to get our own show in order. So we need to make sure that our democracies are working and delivering for people at home, that economic inequality is being addressed, that society inequality is being addressed, that our societies work. Um, and then we can point to those as our examples. And then we need to be prepared to defend values abroad and defend and help those that are prepared to defend themselves and those ideals. And so we get those two things right, we can't be beaten because ultimately nobody wants to live under the jackboot of thugs like Putin or Xi. So I'm confident that we can prevail in the end but we need to get it right. And uh, that's our challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are still some questions which remain unanswered. As you pointed out that um, the dictatorship is definitely not the right model that we want to market. But again, there are a lot of democracies. We don't even know whether they are still democracies or there is a hidden dictatorship in those countries. I think the audience knows about which countries I'm pointing out here. Right. And Again, um, there are questions related to this fact that if um, Ukraine becomes the next Afghanistan, uh, what happens to the future of Ukraine as such? Uh, is it going to be uh, the same, you know, very similar situation to what has happened in Afghanistan? Because when you try to bring in this ammunition, when you try to bring in the military equipment, we have seen what happened in Afghanistan and how um, a, an illegal entity uh, previously called Taliban, have started using that military equipment which was left yeah. behind by the United States last year when the United States left Afghanistan in a very chaotic manner. Um, and if similar things end up happening in Ukraine, you never know that these kind of things will impact uh, Ukraine as well. Um, well, we don't know. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, I think Ukraine and Afghanistan are slightly different. But I think the important thing for the world here is that we don't abandon Ukrainians and so we shouldn't encourage Ukrainians to fight to the last drop of their blood. Um, a lot of people say, well, we need Ukraine to break Russia and this is the opportunity. Well, I don't support that. But what I do support is Ukrainian independence, the ability for them to uh, fight for their own freedoms, to resource that fight as best we can, to give them everything they need to defend themselves. And if we do that, they'll be able to force the situation to sue for the best outcome that they can achieve. And the moment that they feel comfortable with the outcome, I'll feel comfortable with the outcome. But we shouldn't be enforcing our own peace, our own version of peace, because we're a little bit unhappy about higher power prices or higher gas prices or high food prices. That is too high a price to pay for democracy, and it won't be the end of it. That Anyone who believes that we can end it by, we can end any future conflict by uh, making a bad peace now, I think is wrong and I think it's critical that we support the Ukrainians and what they want and what they're comfortable with and once we've arrived at that point then we can have a hopefully a, a better outcome and a, and, a, and a future peace for all time. Absolutely thank you so much Misha I really appreciate your time um, I am I have really gained a lot of insights uh, particularly from you because you have worked closely in this uh, situation and I'm sure that when we share this episode with other people on LinkedIn and on our other platforms, I'm sure they are going to get um, they are going to get a lot of insights. And for everyone's information, we have got a very special award 
coming up in the first year anniversary celebration of this podcast where we'll give an opportunity to the people to uh, give their votes for the best episode that they have heard in the last one year um and of course um we will have some sort of awards for that which makes the networking session even more interesting and full of surprises so do come along for that and thank you so much misha um i hope to see you again in this podcast great pleasure mate good luck with everything and uh good luck to whoever wins that award i'm uh, i'm sure it'll be a very hotly contested field but thank you so much for having me this is an ultimate global podcast Hello and welcome to our special weekly podcast on trending international and social affairs. You're listening to Saurabh Kora and George Mavros from Sydney.